It's time for Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Good morning, Michael. A pleasure as always. Yeah, good morning. Always great to be here. Now, I recall you and I two years ago, in fact, probably more than two years ago now, were discussing complaints that we heard from members of the public regarding the purported unconstitutional nature of British Columbia and other jurisdictions' COVID-19 provisions. And I remember at that point you were reminding us of the importance of Section 1 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, as well as the right that all of us have of security of the person. In hindsight... What was the status of many of the legal challenges that were brought forward? Uh, Well, uh, this Monday, uh, just this past Monday in Victoria, in fact, uh, there were uh, a whole series of these challenges that were uh, decided on by uh, the B.C. Supreme Court um, in the form of uh, Chief Justice Hinkson. Um, He had four decisions that came out on Monday, and there was another uh, decision, which was also a recent one with a different judge. Um, And essentially, all of the uh, decisions that have come out recently uh, dismissed all of the various challenges that were brought. I I must say, when I read all of these, as I've just uh, done, it reminded me, I don't know if you've played... uh, um, Fruit Ninja on the iPad or similar device. I'm familiar with it. I've never played, but I'm familiar with it. I, I, I had that in uh, in mind as I read these various uh, constitutional uh, challenges with uh, Chief Justice Hinkson uh, cutting through uh, all of them <laughs> in quick succession. Um, there were a variety of arguments that were made uh, challenging uh, all manner of uh, things, and the way in which the various challenges were dismissed was uh, varied. Um, one of, a couple of the uh, challenges that were brought on constitutional grounds uh, wound up being uh, dismissed on the basis that the people bringing the challenges had not exhausted their other statutory remedies. Hmm. And the way that works is that if there is some kind of a government administrative decision, uh, you know, requiring you to have a vaccine card or, you know, uh, denying you a driver's license or whatever it might be, um, before you're able to just go off to court and challenge it, you need to exhaust reasonable remedies that are provided for in the legislation, right? Mm. So, for example, if uh, you fail your driver's test, there's probably some scheme in the uh, Motor Vehicle Act to appeal that, right? Uh, and if you don't first exhaust the internal appeal mechanisms that might exist, uh, you're not going to be successful in court. They want you to sort of exhaust your um, statutory appeal mechanisms before you go further. Uh, and so a couple of these uh, were dismissed on the basis that the people bringing the challenges to various you know, public health orders and so on had not exhausted the remedies they would have had to challenge them internally. Um, and so they didn't uh, go far from that perspective. Um, another one of the uh, challenges that was brought um well, one of the people bringing the challenges uh, challenge argued that um, even though he received a, a health exemption from having to get uh, vaccinated when you needed to do that to go into restaurants and so on, even though he was he uh, filed an appeal based on health grounds and was successful, that some businesses were not recognizing that or letting him in only on a sometimes or asking him many questions about his exemption. Um, that argument was dismissed on the basis that constitutional rights are things that are obligations the government might have. They don't apply to private businesses. 
Um, and so even if some private business was to deny you entry or not understand the exemption, that's not the government's fault. And so you can't get a constitutional remedy for that. Um, so that was another basis to um, dismiss one of these things. There was another interesting challenge somebody brought uh, that uh, during the height of the uh, pandemic when hospitals were filling up, uh, there was a period of time when these uh, uh, these sort of internal reviews that you could request, uh, they decided to only do them for health reasons and not for people that were challenging the need to get a vaccine passport or something for some other reason. Hmm. Um, that was an interesting one. That, that was brought by somebody uh, in Victoria here who was described as a person who had a law degree but never qualified to practice and so operates as a, quote, legal consultant <laughs> hmm. doing cases for free. Hmm. Um, that uh, that challenge was unsuccessful as well. Um, it was an interesting one. The court found that at the time and in the context, uh, it was not unreasonable to dedicate the medical resources to treating people rather than having doctors spending their time reviewing hundreds of applications by people that didn't want to have a vaccine passport for non-medical reasons. Interesting. So it was an interesting challenge, but that didn't succeed either. Um, one of the other challenges that was brought um, was a challenge to the uh, requirement that existed for some time to do um, uh, COVID tests before coming back into Canada. Um, that This challenge was uh, brought uh, under the uh, Quarantine Act, which is federal, um, and it was a woman who showed up at the uh, border crossing in Surrey uh, in November of 2021, I believe it was. Um, and um, they said, well, you have to do a test. And she said, no, I'm not doing it. Uh, and so they gave her a ticket, which amounted to $5,750. The way, by the way, it worked in that fashion is that you have a, if you're a Canadian citizen, you've got a constitutional right to enter Canada or leave Canada. And so they can't just turn you around and say, go back where you came from. If you don't do the test, they would let you in, but then hand you this walking ticket. Yes. Um, in that particular case, what happened is the woman apparently went away traveling and didn't receive, she said, her court date when she challenged the ticket. Um, and um, she tried to um, uh, get an a, uh, extension of time to appeal it or another opportunity to appeal it was denied. And she claimed that some unknown person at the courthouse gave her advice that the way to proceed was a uh, attack on the uh, legislation itself. Um, she tried that. That was poor advice. <laughs> that amounts to what's called a collateral attack on something. Mm -hmm. um, she should have challenged the decision not to allow her time to or another chance to appeal the ticket rather than trying to challenge the um, scheme as a way to challenge the ticket. That's mm -hmm. what it amounted to. Um, and so uh, that challenge as well was dismissed. It was an interesting one. She, unfortunately for her, wound up with a cost order against her for doing that. Maybe the moral of the story is don't take legal advice from unknown random people at the courthouse. Uh, maybe you want to uh, talk to a lawyer or somebody to figure out how you should frame your uh, legal challenge. Indeed. Um, so in any case, for a variety of uh, diverse reasons, uh, which amounted to, uh, in many cases, a conclusion that the orders that were put in place were reasonable um, in the context of the information that they had, uh, that um, there just wasn't a constitutional um, failure here. Some of those amounted to procedural problems and how these things were brought. Uh, in other cases, the uh, judge went on and analyzed the merits of it. Um, and so essentially... Uh, 
Monday was Fruit Ninja Day for the various constitutional challenges to the various vaccine and passport and quarantine act requirements and testing requirements. Um, all of them uh, were dismissed. Um, I think we probably, I think we might have predicted that a couple of years ago when we talked about it, but uh, there we have it from uh, Chief Justice uh, Hinkson. Uh, that's it for those. Maybe they're more in the pipeline, but uh, you've got a mitt full of uh, decisions that seem to cover a pretty good portion of the waterfront and uh, none of them got any legal traction whatsoever very well michael mulligan with mulligan defense lawyers we'll take a quick break here at cfax 1070 continue legally speaking other stories on the agenda coming up right after this all right we're back on the air here at cfax 1070 as we continue legally speaking michael mulligan barrister and solicitor with mulligan defense lawyers what's next on the agenda michael uh, next on the agenda is, I think, a very interesting case out of the Court of Appeal that's got at least a couple of significant elements to it. Um, the background of the case, uh, it, it arises out of the uh, uh, Waiwai Cub First Nation, otherwise the Campbell River Indian Band. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the background is that a, uh, the appellant in this case and his uh, mother uh, had uh, built a home on the First Nation there. One of the challenges that arises for First Nations people that want to build a home uh, is that, unlike in any other location, you can't get the usual kind of mortgage uh, to uh, build a home because um, of how they deal with land ownership on reserves. Uh, They have this idea of collective land ownership, uh, and what it means is that um, an individual person can't own the land, and if you can't own the land or sell the land, you can't get a mortgage easily uh, because the bank would be unable to repossess the home if you didn't pay your mortgage, hmm. right? That's the essence of it. Yeah. Um, the origin of that is just uh, really unsatisfactory. I think it was like not trusting people to make adult decisions about property. Yeah. Uh, it's something we really need to fix. But in any case, that's the background. So the appellant in this case and his mom wanted to build a home on this First Nations land, and so they got a mortgage. And they, to do that, they had to have the band, I guess, guarantee the mortgage, because otherwise the bank would not lend the money to them, because the bank would have no way to have any recourse if the, they didn't pay the mortgage, right? Which prevents people from doing rational adult things like getting a mortgage and building a home. But that's what happened. Unfortunately, they didn't pay the mortgage. Uh, and so what happened is the band had to paid out the mortgage and then was going to evict the uh, person and their mother from the house. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, they responded to that by burning the house to the ground. Oh, wow. The house burned down. It took a bad turn. Uh, and so they wound up being charged with arson, effectively, <laughs> right, for burning this yeah. house down. Wow. Um, the uh, the um, son, uh, without uh, pled guilty uh, to uh, doing this and was sentenced to 21 months in prison, as was his mother. Uh, and so the the son appealed that. Uh, and there are two inter- there are a couple of interesting elements to how that played out in this decision that came out from the court of appeal. First of all. Unlike in uh, at trial, where if a person can't afford a lawyer, they might be able to get legal aid or they might not, right? Uh, in BC, if you are uh, have a minimum wage job, you're considered too wealthy to get legal aid and you're literally on your own, which is really unsatisfactory. In the Court of Appeal, there's a section in the Criminal Code, Section 684, 
And that section permits a judge of the Court of Appeal to appoint a lawyer to help somebody who can't afford a lawyer to help with an appeal. Uh, It's a pretty progressive thing to have. Hmm. Where somebody makes that kind of an application, uh, a judge of the Court of Appeal has to consider a variety of factors, things like you know, the complexity of the case, what's the importance of it, is this person able to do it themselves properly, um, and also the merits of the appeal. So they need to look at, does this thing have merit? They wouldn't want to be appointing counsel if an appeal is frivolous and just isn't going anywhere. And that brings us to the interesting argument, uh, which got at least some traction from one of the judges from the Court of Appeal. And the argument that got traction with them involved an argument of what amounts to a claim of double jeopardy. Hmm. And that arises out of Section 11 of the Charter, which provides that if somebody is finally acquitted of an offense, not to be tried for it again, and if finally found guilty and punished for the offense, not to be tried and punished for it again. That kind of makes sense. It's kind of consistent with principles of fairness, right? You don't want to keep punishing the person repeatedly for the same thing. That's not fair. Now, what does it mean to be punished for something again? And what does it mean to be convicted of something? Hmm. Uh, Because sometimes there are sort of consequences to criminal conduct that wouldn't amount to a conviction or punishment, right? Like maybe you lose your job, for example, right? Uh, And that wouldn't be a punishment. That's sort of another very unfortunate thing that might happen if you were convicted of a criminal offense. But here's what happened in this case. The... There's been a, a scheme put in place to uh, by the federal government to delegate authority to some bands to uh, impose these things called community protection laws. Uh, and this band has such a law uh, called the Community Protection Law from 2020. And one of the things that this community protection law permits the band to do is to banish people from uh, First Nation territory. Um, And it permits banishment when somebody is either convicted of an offense or charged with an offense. Now, unfortunately, the the piece of legislation, the the community protection law, is not particularly well drafted. Like, there are problems with it, like, how was that decision made? And does the person have any opportunity to say anything about it? There are problems with it, but it exists. And they did it. In this case, they banished the man and his mother— from the First Nation uh, when they were charged. And they did so for a period of six months. And so the argument, or one of the arguments on the appeal, was, hey, that's a punishment. Hmm. Banishment is a pretty serious punishment. Yeah, so you shouldn't Um, try him and and imprison him. Yeah, I see it. Yeah, can you do it again? The band's already punished me. Yeah. And the judge hearing this application for the appointment of counsel to help concluded that, Indeed, historic, historically, banishment was a criminal sanction um, in both the colonial legal system and some traditional uh, First Nations legal systems. That is a punishment that would be imposed on people, right? Um, and so that may bring it into that territory of a punishment rather than just sort of an incidental thing that might have happened to you like you lost your job, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the British legal system, we used to banish people to Australia, right? That's <laughs> I how suppose Australia we did, going. didn't we? Yeah. Right? Yeah. That was kind of a punishment. You, get, you got convicted of theft. Guess what? We need to populate this uh, colony <laughs> off. You go to Australia. Good luck with the good luck on the boat. 
and as well, First Nations would use that in some cases, it would appear, uh, as a traditional form of punishment. You're out of the community. You've done something uh, to damage the community. You burn the house down. Yeah. Um, and so the judge hearing this application to appoint counsel had to analyze whether this appeal had some merit. Um, and the judge concluded that indeed it does. Um, and so the uh, judge has ordered that counsel be appointed. And one of the things that's going to be argued on the appeal when it gets there is going to be, does this amount to effectively double jeopardy? Hmm. And that has all kinds of implications, right? Yeah. Um, right? Because if, if you've got people being banished in this way, like this code permits banishment upon being charged, does that mean that no more prosecution can go on if that happens? Yeah. The, the scheme also contemplates banishment potentially forever for somebody who is convicted. Is that allowed? Because hmm. it would seem to mean it would work the other way, right? If somebody's convicted of something and they're punished criminally, and if this amounts to sort of a criminal esque punishment, should the ban then later be able to say, and by the way, we're banishing you? Or is it, no, no, I've served my. 21 months in jail. I'm back. You can't now banish me. I've already been punished. How can you punish me in that way again? It's over. Yeah. Um, and so it's going to be really interesting to see how this thing plays out because it will have all kinds of implications for these sort of schemes in both directions. Also, I, I'd hope if anyone reads these, uh, the community protection law needs some work. <laughs> uh, but Leaving that aside, there are just some really important issues there about uh, how are those to work. And I must say, what obligations are there on sort of entities beyond the courts to deal with allegations of criminal conduct, right? Because you see this in other contexts as well. Like, you know, for example, when there are allegations of um, sexual misconduct on a uh, hockey team uh, or by somebody who is a player on a hockey team or somebody who is a student in a university. There seems to be this trend towards an expectation that the hockey team, hockey league, university, whatever it might be, is going to investigate that and impose some kind of punishment or sanction. Is that appropriate? Hmm, right? Yeah. I often sort of scratch my head when I hear those things, complaints about why didn't so-and-so do something. I think, why in the world is the hockey league uh, in charge of that? It seems to me if somebody is accused of a violent crime, that's kind of what we have courts for. Yeah, it's not like we um, have hockey court and hockey judges. We have just one justice system for everyone, supposedly. Right. And should we have, for example, this sort of separate parallel justice system for people who are First Nations people? Is that mm, appropriate? Indeed. You know, should they be subject to some greater punishment for that reason? Um, and so there's lots wrapped up in this, starting with how we deal with uh, First Nations people and their ability to own land and you know, not treating people like adults who can make sensible decisions. Uh, and then we've got that issue of uh, the fact that there is possible to appoint counsel. And then we've got that other big issue about whether it amounts to um, a double jeopardy. And so we will find out. Very interesting. We've got uh, three minutes and 20 seconds remaining in today's segment. Yeah, I think we can cover the last case in that time. Um, the last case I've got on the agenda is a case involving a fishing boat and an insurance policy. Hmm. Um, and it was a company that bought a fishing boat uh, and then bought insurance for the fishing boat. Uh, and the uh, policy they bought uh, covered the fishing boat uh, for, and it's a great language, adventures and perils of the seas and of other like perils, losses and misfortunes, <laughs> and on and on it goes. 
Um, and in any case, they had this fishing boat, and on its uh, maiden voyage, after some work being done on the boat to fix it up, the engine overheated and blew up, <laughs> causing $125,000 in damage and an insurance claim. Now, the legal issue that was decided involves this uh, topic. In British Columbia, when you're in the Supreme Court suing somebody over money, mm-hmm. either side can request a jury trial, and they would do that by giving a jury notice to the other side, uh, and then they have to pay a, a deposit of fees because there are increased fees for having a jury trial, right? Because sheriffs got to collect people, their jury fees paid out to jurors, that kind of thing. Yes. And if the other side, other party, doesn't like that, doesn't want to have a jury, uh, they can uh, try to set aside the jury notice. And the fish boat owner here made an application to try to stop the insurance company from having a jury uh, deal with the case, which brings up sort of the interesting issue of when should that be permitted and when do you have a right to a jury and might not have a right to a jury. And the kinds of factors that a judge has to decide when one party is trying to stop having stop the other side from requesting a jury trial include things like how many parties are involved, how long is it going to go, um, the volume of expert testimony. Um, this one I thought was a good factor they have to consider. The use of unfamiliar technical terms. Hmm. <laughs> that's, sort of, that's sort of in the mix. So a judge can consider a whole variety of things when determining is it appropriate to stop somebody who wants to have a jury trial from having a jury trial? Yes. Um, and in this case, over the fish boat motor um, uh, problem, uh, the judge considered the fact that there are only two lawyers involved. The case is only going for eight days, and there is one expert. Uh, and the area of the law is not particularly novel, and there's no reason why you know, people on a jury can't decide whether the exploding engine falls within that uh, category of things covered by the insurance policy. And so the application was unsuccessful. And the result would be that the insurance company insuring the fish boat uh, will get to have the jury trial they wanted. Uh, And so that's how it works in a civil case where you've got one party that wants a jury trial and one party that doesn't. The judge has to decide whether the case is too long, complicated, or whatever it might be that might prevent a jury from properly deciding it. Uh, And in the case of the exploding uh, boat engine, uh, no problem. Uh, and so a uh, insurance company or a jury will get to decide whether uh, that peril uh, is a peril covered by the policy. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Legally speaking, during the second half of our second hour every Thursday here on CFAX 1070. Michael, thank you. A pleasure as always. Thank you so much. Have a great day. All right. You too. Take care.